If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Three great words. Free fries Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Valid one time on Friday. So participating McDonald's through 123124. Excludes tax. Must update rewards. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In 1920, the 19th Amendment to the US Constitution supposedly granted all American women the right to vote. But for black women, the reality was not so simple. This seemingly milestone moment in the history of US women's suffrage was just one small step in a 200-year struggle for African-American women to gain the vote. A struggle that's charted by Martha S. Jones in her Kundal Prize shortlisted book, Vanguard. I spoke to Martha about how black women's battle for the vote tied into other contemporary issues and a wider fight for political power. Vanguard looks at African-American women's long battle for the vote and for political power more generally in the United States. What made you really want to write this book? Or or it might be more accurate to say, what made you realise that this book needed to be written? I knew that in 2020, the US was going to be marking uh, 100 years of women's suffrage. Um, In 1920, the 19th Amendment to the US Constitution was added that is often thought of as a milestone moment in the history of women's political power in the US. But I also knew that it was possible that not only the roles that Black women had played in that struggle might be overlooked, But more importantly, what might be overlooked is that despite an amendment to the federal constitution, many Black American women do not win the white to vote, um, that their struggle continues on until 1965 with the passage of a Voting Rights Act in the U.S. So I thought this book needed to be written in a sense so that we would be able to tell the whole story. 
So just to pick up on your point about the 19th Amendment, which was passed in 1920, but say for listeners in the UK who might not know what that was, can you explain a bit about it and why it didn't perhaps affect the lives of black women in the ways that perhaps it did for other women? So in the US, the Constitution is a text, that's important to say, and um, it's a text that dates back to 1787. And so over its long history until today, it continues to be amended to reflect contemporary concerns. Voting rights um, was not addressed in the original US Constitution, and so it's been amended many times. And beginning... Uh, depending on who you ask, but certainly beginning in the early decades of the 19th century, there emerges in the U.S. a debate about the roles women might play in politics. And out of that grows a campaign to win women's suffrage in a U.S. system that happens in part in individual states, but it also happens importantly in a campaign to add to the U.S. Constitution a curious sort of amendment, one that says the states may not use sex as a criteria for arbitrating voting rights. It's not actually an affirmative promise of the vote to women, but it's a bar against those laws that had limited the vote to men. So why didn't that apply in in practice, in reality, to black women? What were some of the barriers that they still faced getting to the ballots? Turn back 50 years earlier, the U.S. Constitution after the Civil War had been amended to prohibit the states from using race as a criteria. And that might make it sound as if in 1920, now the way should be open for Black women to vote, right? States can't use race. They can't use sex. Black women should be coming to the polls in, you know, their fullness. But in fact, what if individual states learn to do in the wake of the 15th Amendment after 1870 is to craft state laws that on their face don't actually say one cannot vote because of their race or one cannot vote because of their sex. But in their effect, they work to keep Black Americans, men, and now after 1920, uh, women away from the polls. These are things like literacy tests, poll taxes, grandfather clauses. Um, individual states are now crafting ways of getting around these amendments, and Black women are now going to be subject to those kinds of state laws that have already kept their husbands and their fathers and their sons away from the polls for many years. Something that your your book illustrates really well is the fact that this fight for for black women wasn't just about getting the vote. It was a, tied into myriad other battles that they were fighting. Can you um, explain a bit about some of those? Black women very early um, in the 19th century develop a perspective on American politics that today we would term intersectional. That is to say that they are thinking both about the problem of racism and the problem of sexism and are especially tuned into the ways in which those two barriers to political rights kind of come together as a formidable um, impediment to their power in the realm of American politics. So Black women are thinking in this complex way about voting rights and need to build a political movement that speaks to both simultaneously. What does that mean? For example, during the decades leading up to the 
ratification of the 19th Amendment to the Constitution, um, a long campaign, Black women are simultaneously working to win a promise of women's voting rights in the Constitution, while they are also working as deliberately to secure anti-lynching legislation, federal legislation that would suppress the violence and intimidation that keeps Black men from the polls. For Black women, these are companion struggles. They really can't be torn apart from one another, and it makes their quest for political rights unique. I'm interested in how you think looking at Black women's activism and experience can change the the bigger picture if if we're looking at women's suffrage in America. So how do you think we need to reframe the narrative of the women's suffrage story if we want to take Black women into account as well? One important shift has to do with time. When does the story begin? When does the story end? If indeed it does end, maybe it doesn't end at all, um, sitting here in 2021. But um, for example, my story begins in a, a place that might surprise some readers because it begins with Black women in the 1820s um, in church. And it turns out that Black Christian women, um, women who aspire to preach, to occupy the pulpit, to exercise authority in their uh, church denominations, these Black women very early in the 19th century are already developing a political critique that will be adapted ultimately to the secular realm. So we start earlier when we focus on Black women. And at the same time, as I alluded to earlier, we end later because 1920 ratification of the 19th Amendment is a milestone in the story of Black women's voting rights, but it is hardly the end or the culmination of the story. And out of 1920, is born a new movement for voting rights for Black women and men that will culminate only 45 years later. Um, So this is a longer story than we're accustomed to in telling the story of voting rights for American women. Um, And it's a reminder, I think, that through much of U.S. history, the story of voting rights and the expansion of voting rights, which is what the 19th Amendment represents, the story of voting rights is oftentimes accompanied by a story of voter suppression. Um, And that really is the full story of the 19th Amendment. Um, But we only discover that directly when we focus on Black women. I just am going to return to something you said there about you beginning with this story with women who were involved in the church and church-based communities, because I think to a lot of people that connection isn't necessarily um, immediate, you know, between voting rights and church communities. And and that is a story that kind of comes up throughout your book. I wonder if you could explain the the connections you, you draw between that. I think some readers are familiar with the story of the modern civil rights movement and the centrality of African-American churches in that story. Oftentimes, it's a story that's told focusing on Black men as religious figures, Dr. Martin Luther King being foremost among them. But the backstory, if you will, is about the long and important place that Black churches have occupied as, yes, sites for um, spiritual sustenance, but also as sites for political organizing among Black Americans. And so we could reach all the way back to the 
18th century, and we would find Black Americans organizing politically through their church communities. It turns out that within those communities that include men and women, and that are premised certainly um, for a very long time in the notion that men are the, the head, right? Men occupy the leadership, they are the ministers, that there are struggles that go on because women um, not only possess talents, they possess the capacity to win converts, um, they raise the money, and a great deal more. And as these deeply committed but deeply effective church women begin to come into their fullness, they bump up against a kind of patriarchal notion of how Black churches should be organized. And this turns out to be an important place where Black women are not only really struggling over power, right? Who should control the money that they raise? Can they simply read the Bible aloud or can they interpret the scriptures? These are real questions um, in the 19th and into the 20th century. But as important for our story about women's suffrage, this is a crucible in which Black women again and again are thinking through that equation of gender and power to figure out who they can be in public culture. And they carry that very much into the secular realm. In order to build a movement for women's suffrage, for women's political power, we have to begin with ideas. And the church turns out a play, to be a place for the development of those very powerful ideas that animate then women in politics. And to what extent were African-American women involved in the wider women's suffrage movement, the primarily white women's suffrage movement in the U.S.? There are always Black American women who are part of, allied with, and exercise influence um, within the uh, white-led women's suffrage associations dating back to the 1860s and coming all the way forward to 1920 and ratification in that year of the 19th Amendment. At the same time, uh, Vanguard is a book that really looks to shift our attention to an important degree away from those associations and the very few women who are Black women who are um, part of them to introduce organizations like the National Association of Colored Women, founded in the mid-1890s, still active today. That is the place where thousands, tens and hundreds of thousands of Black women are uh, organizing around political rights. It is important for Black women leaders to keep one toe in the, the national contests that, being, uh, that are being led by white women, never to cede that completely to white women alone. But the real work of Black women's political organizing comes in organizations like the National Association of Colored Women. Organizations like that and the activists um, that worked in them, what kind of stuff did they get up to? So they are working through a model that is organized around small clubs that are scattered across the country. These are old networks that go back to the Civil War era. Um, and here, women are raising 
funding, raising consciousness. But by the time we get to the eve of the 19th Amendment, they are, for example, running suffrage schools, training one another how to pay a poll tax, how to pass a literacy test, right? how to get registered, how to cast a ballot. They will band together in the face of intimidation and violence, hoping for a kind of safety in numbers as they look to get to the polls. And so we see the ways in which these networks are not only important for applying political pressure on male lawmakers who are responsible for promulgating a constitutional amendment and voting to ratify it, they are there to do the grassroots organizing that ensures that Black women get to cast those ballots and that those ballots are counted. You mentioned there that banding together was partly protection against intimidation and violence. And That is something that I wanted to ask you about in this story, because I think it's important to mention, isn't it, some of the challenges that these women faced. What were the fears um, about black women getting the vote and what kind of backlash did that lead to against women who, who fought for it? Part of what the critics of black women voters anticipate correctly, it turns out, is that black women are going to come to the polls and vote as a block unlike their white counterparts, who are perceived to be poised to split between what are two political parties in the U.S. in the early 20th century, Black women, it turns out, do indeed, when they can vote, vote overwhelmingly for, in those years, the old Republican Party. And so the fear is that Black women are actually going to move the needle on election day because they are going to vote as a block rather than split between the two parties. And so there is a real fear of Black women's political power. How to respond to that? Intimidation and violence is a broad way of um, talking about the ways in which Democrats, white Democrats in the American South, will organize um, intimidation campaigns, falsely accuse Black women of um, political organizing or aiming to defeat their party, and then putting pressure not only on those women as individuals, but putting pressure on the institutions that they run. Um, Many of them are educators, building schools for um, African American children. And the threat is we will undermine your uh, your educational enterprise if you become too political and, and become a force in local politics. In some places, I write about the state of Florida, where the Ku Klux Klan in the early 20th century will very deliberately target African-American women, their leaders, but their communities more deeply around 1920 in an effort to keep Black women from casting ballots, that violence will persist and it will for a time succeed, that it is just too dangerous for Black women to come out and register, to come out on election day. So this becomes part of an essential part of the story that whatever a federal amendment might allow for in a legal sense, the conditions on the ground in many Um, southern places are um, too hostile to prevent Black women to take advantage of it. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. What we see from Black American women today in the 21st century is that long, deep and difficult commitment to democracy uh, making itself manifest yet again. (laughs) 
We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So if we're to add nuance to, to moments like the 1920, uh, the 19th Amendment, which have They've previously been hailed as watershed moments, but as you're showing, it's really not that simple. What would you highlight as some of the real key moments in this fight? Or is trying to highlight key moments at all not a useful way to approach this story? No, I think, you know, um, one of the things I learned in writing this book is that what we might call key moments, what we might even, you know, understand to be mythical moments are part of the fabric of politics. And the women I write about indeed need heroines. They need landmark moments in order to sustain this work over many, many generations. So I write about, for example, how they name their clubs for one another, right? For women who have come before them, right? Being inspired by the work that had been done decades before. I think this is critical. And similarly, the 15th Amendment, which had in 1870 prohibited the states from using race as a criteria in voting rights, well, it's a flawed amendment, but Black women regard it right, as one piece um, of a broader campaign for full voting rights. So I think we need those moments to structure and to inspire, frankly, um, the arduous work. Because one of the things that we know now about Black women and their efforts to win political rights is that this is a multi-generational effort that spans, you know, in some versions of the story, really two centuries. And it's important to appreciate how milestones, um, how myths, how uh, sheroes, as we put it, um, the role that all of those things play in sustaining that movement. Well, that leads me really nicely on to my next question. I wonder if you could highlight some of those sheroes, as as you say, um, some of the women that were really foundational or inspiring in this movement. 
I'm going to borrow from Vice President Kamala Harris in August of 2020, 100 years after the 19th Amendment, Kamala Harris accepts the Democratic Party's nomination for run. She's going to run for Vice President of the United States alongside Joe Biden. She gives an acceptance speech and she talks about the women on whose shoulders she stands. There are six of them, and I won't do all of them, but I'll say they begin um, with Mary Church Terrell, um, who herself is a suffragist, the first president of the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs, um, an educator, um, and someone who is remembered to an important degree for her struggles simultaneously to win women's votes and to defeat lynching. Alongside Mary Church Terrell is Mary McLeod Bethune, another educator in the state of Florida, a women's club organizer who was there on the ground in 1920 when the Klan is looking to suppress women's votes in the state of black women's votes in the state of Florida. Mrs. Bethune's girls' school will be targeted by the Klan. She will suffer a setback in those years, but will go on to in essence, do an end run around the violence and intimidation in Florida by coming to Washington and befriending Franklin Roosevelt, President Franklin Roosevelt, and seeing to it that Black Americans become part of Roosevelt's New Deal, his efforts to bring the U.S. out of the Depression. On Kamala Harris's list is Fannie Lou Hamer. Now we're in the 1960s, and we're organizing toward what will become the Voting Rights Act. And Hamer is on the ground in Mississippi, subject like Mrs. Bethune had been a generation before to intimidation and violence. Um, She's going to take her claims to the floor of the Democratic National Convention in 1964. And through her charisma, through her brilliance, bring the cause of Black voting rights into the living rooms of Americans across the nation, um, holding the feet of then-President Lyndon Johnson, the Democrats, and the U.S. Congress to the fire of Black voting rights, helping to press toward the Voting Rights Act. I'll mention one last Shiro who was invoked by Kamala Harris, and that's um, the great Shirley Chisholm. Um, Chisholm is remembered for having been the very first Black American woman to be elected to Congress in 1968 from Brooklyn, New York. Um, Chisholm will go on in 1972 to run for president. She vies for the Democratic nomination for president in 1972. And while I think Mrs. Chisholm never believed she would become the Democratic nominee in 1972, she understood the power and the symbolism and the power of the symbolism in her running for the office because here we are just seven years after a Voting Rights Act has now opened the door to African Americans at the ballot box um, for the first time um, in U.S. history. And Chisholm is there to ignite Black Americans, right, is to lift their sights. Yes, state and local contests remain important, but now Black Americans begin to see themselves as um, people of profound consequence, even contests over the presidency. And Shirley Chisholm um, does that for us with extraordinary effect. 
Thank you for highlighting those figures. And I think from the pages of your book, you could have picked, you know, 60 more, 600 more. There's there's so many amazing women that are chronicled here. One more I just wanted to ask you about was in the acknowledgement at the end of your book, you say that the book as a whole is, is deeply indebted to the work and the epic life of Ida B. Wells, who you admit may possibly be one of your favorite Black American suffragists. Why is Wells such an inspiring figure to you? Ida Wells begins her life out of the profound adversities that face so many Black Americans in the wake of slavery's abolition, in the uncertainties then of what freedom and citizenship might mean. She is orphaned along with her siblings as a really a teenager. Um, saddled with extraordinary um, responsibilities very young. She becomes an educator. And even in the seemingly modest role of an educator, Wells is beginning to develop her very piercing political critique of where Black women stand on the American landscape. She famously gets into a tussle, more than a tussle, a real brawl um, with a train conductor when she is ejected from what was in the 19th century termed a lady's car. Black women, even when they bought a ticket like Wells, were not permitted to sit in a lady's car. They were relegated to a smoker car or a colored car. And Wells fights back and and when she's ejected, sues the railway company. Well, this is the beginning of a career that expands into journalism, into um, early sociological work on the fact of lynching and extra-legal violence in the United States, will bring Wells to Chicago and by the 19-teens situate her as one of the premier organizers among Black women and their quest for voting rights. I love Wells because she is unapologetic and she's got a great sense of fashion. Um, (laughs) And so she does all of this, you know, just remarkable work for um, any woman, for, but for a Black American woman, um, unprecedented in many ways. But she understands that she is going to be the subject of history, that she is making history as she does the arduous work that she does. And she lives long enough to pen a memoir, to leave a legacy, including that of um, her family, which until today is active um, in her name. And um, if I had one fear about Ida Wells is that she could take over this whole book. Fortunately, she's had a number of really excellent biographies, but I think she really embodies the spirit in so many ways of the women, as you said, the many women who animate Vanguard. So you said earlier that this is a a story really about generations of women, you know, standing on each other's shoulders. And I thought that's interesting because in in the introduction of your book, you talk about your own family history and how it connects to this wider story. Can you tell us about how some of your own foremothers, as you call them, um, link into the story of uh, Black women in the, the fight for the vote? Well, it turns out today I can, but it wasn't true when I started this book. And I became increasingly self-conscious that I didn't know the story of um, my own foremothers and how they fit into this epic tale of Black women and voting rights. My editor may learn this on this broadcast. Um, I took a detour when I should have been finishing my manuscript. I took a detour um, to see if I couldn't learn something about them. And 
I struggled in particular to find my own grandmother, someone I had known, someone who had helped to raise me. She had been a young woman, a young mother in the in 1920 when the 19th Amendment was ratified. I could find no record of her in her hometown of St. Louis, Missouri. I'll never know um, whether she had tried to register, but I know her mother was a suffragist um, and it was out there organizing and running a suffrage school um, in those years. I followed my grandmother to North Carolina, where in the state archives, the records hadn't survived. I couldn't tell you very much at all about American women in the state of North Carolina and whether they whether they voted at all in those years, because those records have not been uh, maintained. I did find, ultimately, an interview done with my grandmother in the 1970s, and she did talk about voting rights. But interestingly, and it's important for this book, she didn't talk about the 1920s or the 19th Amendment. She talked about the 1950s and the 1960s and the civil rights movement and the campaign that wins the Voting Rights Act. And this discovery for me was, in essence, an affirmation of the way we had approached this book, which was not to end with the 19th Amendment in 1920 at all, but could continue the story until 1965, precisely so that we could capture women like my grandmother for whom those years were, as she put it in the interview, you know, just thrilling. So if we do track this story onto 1965 and beyond to today, what do you see as the legacy of these women and and their work and their activism in America today? On the one hand, the legacy of the women in Vanguard is the model, right, that they provide and the bar that they set, which was a high bar, right, that said no racism, no sexism in American politics. Those are ideals, I think, that we continue to strive for until today. At the same time, many of their techniques, they're organizing, they're working through church networks, through club networks, is still critical in American politics in any given election cycle. For all the, you know, um, sophistication, right, around any given election cycle in the 21st century, what we learned in 2020 was that still Black women's organizing on the ground in their own communities was not only essential, it was consequential. At the same time, I think that some of the women in Vanguard, I perhaps could not wholly have anticipated what a force Black women have become in American politics. That includes um, our Vice President, Kamala Harris, but it includes 130 Black women who ran for Congress in 2020. 20, um, a record-shattering number, the many Black women organizers and operatives and strategists and more within the political campaigns, and then those Black women at the polls who still, by and large, vote as a block like they did 100 years ago. We are seeing in the 21st century a kind of culmination, a manifestation of a political culture that has these long roots and now, we hope, right, is becoming more visible to not only American voters, but to folks across the globe who are thinking about the, the challenges and the possibilities and the future of democracy. What we see from Black American women today in the 21st century is that long, deep, and difficult commitment to democracy uh, making itself manifest yet again. 
That was Martha Jones. Her book, Vanguard, How Black Women Broke Barriers, Won the Vote and Insisted on Equality for All, is out now published by Basic Books. We've spoken to all of the Kundal Prize shortlisted authors, so check back in your podcast feed for more thought-provoking conversations, including Tim Harper on Asia's anti-imperialist underground and Marielina Cars on the Burby's Slave Rebellion. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us again on Friday when Chris Pearson will be explaining how dogs shaped urban living in New York, London and Paris. Music